Hi there, my name is Saul and you're listening to the Story of London. This is a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the city as a single linear story. We've finally reached the year 1066, but there is so much going on at this moment in London and around it that I'm going to cut my normal preamble as we try to cram it all into one or two episodes. So without further ado, welcome then to chapter 47 of the story of London, the year of three kings. In the December of 1065, King Edward of England was not well and had not been since that October. The Earl of Northumbria, Tostig Godwinson, who was possibly the only male member of that family that the king liked, had just been deposed by a massive rebellion of the local residents. The king had seemingly wanted to stand his ground, defy these rebels, stand by his friend. He had even summoned the Fjord, the Levy Army of England, to fight for Tostig. But the Saxon yeomen of the land had failed to raise for him, and Tostig's own brother, Harold, had thrown his kin under the bus, agreeing to the rebels' demand that the young Morcar of Mercia should take the position of Earl of Northumbria, reading between the lines it does appear that the strain of all of this had caused the king to suffer something like a minor stroke, a TDI. One source at the time said, From that day until the day of his death, he bore a sickness of the mind. Some believed the king wasn't fully in charge of things anymore. He attended ceremonies, he looked all kingly, but The sense was that others were in charge of the state. By that November, things got worse. Edward was visibly distressed that the now former Earl Tostig had been declared an exile from England. The king lavished the former Earl with gifts before Tostig sailed away, feeling resentful and angry towards his older brother Harold. Tostig didn't sail far, only across the channel. And here the Count of Flanders made Tostig the custodian of the port of St. Omar. This gesture sent out a clear political message that Tostig could return at some point. Maybe he would, someday. Edward's failing health, however, made the king bring forward the consecration of his grand mausoleum, the Abbey of St. Peter's he was building on Thorny. The small island in the River Thames had made the centre of his court. Some sources at this point suggest that Harold was the, quote, sub-regulus, unquote, the under-king of England, perhaps almost regent. Edward was clearly fading. Luckily for all, he had an heir, the teenager. Edgar Eerseling, the young Hungarian-raised great-nephew of the king, was in court watching all of this. 
the chances were that the succession order was clear on what happens if Edward died. Edgar would become king, and Queen Edith, the king's wife, would have been set to become his regent. That was a common enough phenomenon, with kings too young to rule by themselves in Europe at this time. Only a decade earlier, Empress Agnes had run a regency government for the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV, and only six years previous, Queen Anna of Kiev had overseen the regency council of King Philippe of France. So Edith being regent was not a big upset or a shock and everyone knew how capable she was. But as recent events had shown, she and the king had been powerless to stop her older brother Harold from arranging things as he so wished. They had stood by Tostig against his older brother, but could not stop his removal. One has to ask, did young possibly impressionable Edgar witness all of this? Was he taking on board the king and queen's biases? Did Harold worry about Edgar's feelings on this matter? The consecration of the new abbey on Thorny Island was brought forward to Christmas Day. Of course it was. That was the one day of the year where no worldly business was to be scheduled. The perfect day to consecrate the place the old king wished to be buried in. This was going to be a grand and special occasion. The guest list for it was bigger than the hall of the King on Thorny could accommodate. Temporary buildings were erected in the grounds of the abbey and the palace to cope with the extra guests. These would serve as banqueting halls and accommodation for the plethora of visitors, both noble and commoner. They came from all over the realm, and London would have been intimately aware of the significant event taking place just around the bend in the river, down on Thorn Island. The day before it was supposed to happen, however, on Christmas Eve, the king took a sudden turn for the worse, health-wise, and the consecration was delayed. By all accounts, during the festivities, King Edward put on a brave face and maintained all was well, joining in the feasting and merrymaking as best he could, but... Edith was noticed fussing him more, caring for the old man in his weakening state. Perhaps his heir Edgar did as well. We do not know. On the 28th of December, the feast day of the Holy Innocents, the king summoned the senior clerics of England. They were led by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stigand, a man suffering from an excommunication issued upon him by the Pope for corruption and holding his post illegally, at least according to the authorities in Rome. At this gathering, the king ordered the assembled bishops to carry on with the consecration of the abbey, even if he was too sick to attend. His desire to be buried in his giant new church, overriding his need to be there, and so they did, and the Queen, perhaps soon to be Regent Edith, led all the guests, which we can assume included the Crown's adoptive heir Edgar and the protector of the land, Edith's brother Harold. The King began to sicken. We read that supposedly Queen Edith warmed his feet on her lap, and he was now surrounded by only a few of his most trusted advisers, Harold Godwinson and Robert Fitzwemark. Robert Fitzwemark was the steward of the palace and a distant kinsman of Edward. 
the king would drop in and out of lucidity. He was fading quickly, his lucid moments filled with memories of the visions he had had in his fugue state. The powers that be in the palace were trying their best to hide the king's condition, but it became obvious something was up. All old business was being sorted out hurriedly. Ritz went out ordering the king's former chamberlain, a man called Hugolin, be killed for reasons we don't quite understand, and other political opponents had their lands taken off them. The king lapsed into his final illness, and there, right there and then, Harold Godwinson made the most fateful decision of his life. It may be he could have been planning it for a while, probably not, but Harold decided he would not allow Edgar, this boy, become king of England. He would become king. At some point in the depths of December 1065, or at the latest, very early, in January 1066, Harold Godwinson decided to stage a coup d'etat. A story would need to be put out. Harold would claim Edward made a last-minute change of heart. Edith would not be the regent. There would be no need for a regent. He, Harold, would be king on the eve of the Feast of the Epiphany. January 5th, 1066, Edward, King of England, died in his bed. His body was staunched and wrapped in a shroud of Byzantine silk. A gold circlet was placed upon his head and a holy relic hung around his neck. The king was dead and Harold had to move fast, insanely fast. You see, kings of England could only be crowned during the religious festivals. Christmas, Lent, Easter. That was the way it was done. And today's date was January 5th. Tomorrow would be the 12th day of Christmas, the Epiphany, the final day Harold could be crowned. Everything had to be done if his coup was to work over the next 24 hours, less than the next 24 hours. Harold was claiming Edward had changed the line of succession on his deathbed, yet even this claim wasn't enough. This is the pre-Norman era of England. Kings were technically chosen by the Witangamot. Harold would have had to gather the great and the good together, a process that would have taken weeks at most. And this is why I think Harold only made up his mind to seize the throne that Christmas, because the Witangamot was there. Everyone who needed to be in place to pick a king had come to the palace on the River Thames to take part in the king's consecration ceremony. The Witangamot was here. This is why I honestly think that all we are seeing from this moment on is Harold Godwinson, a man we have no evidence of having ever displayed long-term forward thinking in his life, acting fast and making stuff up as he went along. The Witangamot was, at this stage, basically him and his family. The Earls of England were his two baby brothers, and the two other major Earls who owned most of England at this point, Morcar and Edwin, well, he'd married their sister. Added to that, the Archbishop of Canterbury was loyal to his family? No. This opportunity had landed in his lap, and so Harold felt he had to act fast. Indeed, the paradox is, his coup d'etat could only work if he struck where the iron was hot. If he waited just a few days, his claim would have been contested. Of course it was. 
everyone knew Edgar was supposed to be the king. If Harold had to wait until Easter 1066 before he was crowned, it wouldn't have worked. For me, one of the two things that stand out as the clearest proof that the events of January 6th of 1066 were a coup d'etat was the fact that Harold was crowned so quickly. I mean, as king-to-be, if his claim was legitimate, he would have had time to sort things out, maybe approach the Pope and arrange for the excommunication upon the Archbishop of Canterbury to be lifted. As it was, he was moving with such haste that the Archbishop could not crown him, as having an excommunicated Archbishop do the ceremony would have undone the ceremony, so he had to have the Archbishop of York place the crown on his head. On January 6, 1066, the newly built and still not fully completed halls of the Abbey on Thorny Island echoed to the hymns sung in homage to the dead King Edward of England. The sad ceremony filling the giant space with the sounds of mourning and grief. And then, merely hours later, the hastily arranged sacred ceremony of the coronation of King Harold Godwinson, Harold II of England, took place with the cries of glory and adulation echoing off those newly built stone walls. Harold had stolen the throne. Edith went from being regent in waiting to being marginalized, and Edgar, the young king-to-be, he'd just been outmaneuvered. Contrast the coronation of Harold Godwinson to the coronation of the late King Edward. Edward had taken the throne after the previous King Harthur Canute's sudden and mysterious death in Lambeth. Yet even with those suspicious circumstances over him, Edward had been able to wait months before being crowned the following Easter. King Edgar, the king whose coronation ceremony all subsequent coronations in England were based upon, He'd waited about 15 years after being made king before having the crown placed upon his head. Harold Godwinson stuck that crown on his head when it was still warm from the previous owner. This fact for me is a smoking gun. Harold had been crowned so quickly that beyond London and the region immediately around it, no one even knew the king was dead yet. It had been 24 hours, less than 24 hours, in the history of England. No king had ever been crowned so quickly, nor would any ever be crowned so quickly again. The rightful heir had been usurped. This was Harold's show now. That was that, only it wasn't. While we do not know the immediate feelings of Edgar or Queen Edith, we do know that not everyone was happy about Harold taking the throne. Of course they were not. It was a usurpation of a fairly clear line of succession before the whole land. And the largest opposition came from the north. Northumbria had not had good relations with the Godwinsons. Tostig Godwinson had been earl there for some time and had managed, because of various things he did during his reign, and not all of which were bad, it must be said, but he'd managed to achieve something rarely seen in the history of Northumbria. He had actually united the fractious people of the region to oppose him. It was in the face of this rebellion 
that Harold had ignored the demands of the king to crush this and had made deals with the northerners, perhaps thinking that by sacrificing his brother Tostig he could gain their favour. Whatever the case, he now faced the men of Northumbria, the thanes and the powers that be, waking up a week or so later to the news that a. the king was dead, b. Harold was now king, and c. he'd been crowned king already. The North roared in objection. Harold's regime was so fragile that he, unlike either Canute or Edward, could not use someone like his father Godwin to sort out any political problems he had. He had to solve this by himself. So, mounting up fast, Harold travelled north with the Archbishop of York, Wolfston, and pulled off a power move. No King of England had appeared before the men in the north like this before. The Kings of England had been of the line of Alfred the Great. They may rule England, but they were Wessex-based. Only Sven Forkbeard had ever seemed to focus on the North, and he'd apparently wanted to make York the capital of his new regime. Since him, the North had not seen the kings of England, except maybe Canute, but that's when he'd taken men to sail off to fight in Norway. No, Harold's desperation actually worked in his benefit, because he managed to pull a political flanker, and it seems as if the Northerners nominally sided with him. Nominally. They were not in open rebellion towards him anyway, and for Harold, at this stage, that was a win. And what was London's feelings about all of this? Well, I think they would have been, like much of the nation, in a sense of shock at the speed of events. But being as they were the principal port of England at this time, they would have been ideally placed to see the true geopolitical picture. Their world looked far beyond the splendour of the new abbey on Thorny Island, this majestic Westminster. No, they would see the overall lie of the land. And what would London have seen? Harold was king. Just. He had just about secured the nominal, not full opposition of Northumbria. The Earl of Northumbria, Morcar, and his slightly older brother Edwin of Mercia were not rebelling against him. Wales had two puppet rulers he'd put in place, so we sure they would mount no contest. No, internally he was holding on and probably secure enough to be strong enough to exile Edgar at some point. But London would have seen and heard the responses of the rest of Europe to this news. It was a port after all, and their response was universal. If the speed of Harold Godwinson's coronation is the first proof that what he staged was an illegitimate coup d'etat to take power, then the second proof was in the reaction of England's neighbours across Europe. In 1065, each of these nations were at peace with England and the relations were, on the whole, sedate and friendly. Flanders, Normandy, Boulogne, Norway, Denmark, Scotland, each of these countries had relations with England based on Edward's foreign policy and were linked via peaceful commerce and good ties. The second Harold takes the throne, everyone turns hostile, without exception. Every one of England's neighbours treat Harold and his regime as completely illegitimate, and within months, Boulogne, Flanders, Normandy and Scotland were planning to overthrow the king. 
Maybe the Londoners would not have heard that Scotland and the king who'd replaced Macbeth, Malcolm Cranmore, believed that Edgar should be the king as per Edward's plans. But they would have heard what Flanders and Normandy were saying. And they were saying something very different in response to Harold taking the throne. Duke William of Normandy at this point was a much feared political operator. He was about 40 or so. More than that, he had a deadly reputation as a brilliant battlefield commander who had never lost a single battle, apparently. Beyond that, he was now saying that when Harold had turned up in his lands the year before, Harold had promised him the throne. True? Untrue? No one could say. I mean, it was probably untrue. But given Harold had just lied in saying Edward had picked him to be king, who cared? Maybe what William wanted the year before, maybe what the deal they'd made had been just to marry his daughter to Edgar or to Harold or whatever, but, but that didn't matter. What mattered was William had clearly expected someone else other than Harold to take the throne of England. Hell, maybe all that follows was simply William of Normandy being personally affronted by the idea of Harold becoming your majesty. William had met Harold, probably didn't think much of him. He was Edward's underling, his hatchet man. And now he was king? Maybe all this did was stick in his craw. Who cares? All we need know is what London would have heard, carried over tide and sea. William was claiming the throne of England, and he was doing more than that. He was building a fleet to attack. He was going to invade England and take the throne from Harold. War looked like it was coming, like it or not. I'm going to pause for a moment. For many historians, now comes the discussion that what William was doing was some huge step, a radical innovation, an unprecedented leap into the unknown. Building a vast fleet and invading, it wasn't a leap into the unknown. His father had launched an invasion of England back in 1040, when he sought to place Edward on the throne as Canute lay dying. That invasion had been only prevented because the weather was against him. But the idea that William was coming and was going to invade was a simple one and a powerful one, and all knew it could work. I mean, think about it. In the 50 years previous to 1066, Forkbeard of Denmark had invaded England and won. When Forkbeard had died, former King Æthelred of England had invaded England and won back his throne. A few years later, Canute of Denmark had invaded England and won. Invasions that toppled kings were not that rare. Consider also that the Godwinson dynasty had been exiled, but had been restored to power by invading England from France and Ireland. Elfgar of Mercia had been exiled twice and had twice allied with foreign invaders from Ireland and been restored to power. Edward the Confessor himself had once invaded England from Normandy, but he'd been unable to get a foothold, and his brother Elfred had invaded England from Flanders but he'd been ambushed and killed. And Magnus of Norway had almost invaded England. Invasion by sea wasn't something radical here. It was commonplace. It was business as usual. Sure, William had no maritime tradition, and he and his men clearly didn't like to travel on the sea, but 1066 wasn't a bolt out of the blue. For every Londoner, the events of that year were part and parcel of the geopolitical reality of life in the 11th century. They knew, they all knew, that the only thing that would stop William of Normandy coming was the weather. Oh, and the specifically designed deterrents to prevent just such an invasion. The fleets of England. 
Now, King Harold, now forced by the nature of his succession to be a dynamo, was running around trying to secure everything, and right now his biggest issue was the fleet of England. Ever since Edward had gotten rid of the large fleet of Scandinavians who had been based in Lambeth, the English fleet had never quite been itself. It had failed to be as powerful as it had been in the 1040s, but as the inheritor of the Anglo-Scandinavian faction in English politics, it could be argued that any loss of professionalism during the 1050s was ultimately Harold's fault. But the shipfjord could still be effective. Harold had used it to conduct his operations in Scotland and Wales in the decade previous. In both those campaigns, he'd sent land forces into those nations from one direction and then used the shipfjord to unleash a pincer attack, landing his troops by sea coming from another direction. It was his favourite tactic. But here, in 1066, the shipfjord wasn't 100% ready, and Harold needed it now. William was coming. And let us tell a blunt truth here. One of the reasons King Edward had not kept up with the upkeep of the fleet of England as this primary responsibility was really simple. He never really planned for Harold to usurp the throne and turn all of England's allies into enemies overnight. Had he, be that as it may, London would have become, as it had been in the decades previous, the base for increased activity. William of Normandy had let it be known he was sailing to England, and so the city would have been preparing its many fleets. But Harold wasn't alone in facing difficulties at this moment. William had a nightmare upon his hands. The Knights of Normandy were a long way from their illustrious Viking ancestors, they were a culture based on horse combat, not a society based on sea-based adventures. William was facing a lack of enthusiasm towards his campaign. It was not gathering enough men, as to be honest to your average feudal lord over in Normandy, there was more than enough going on at home without risking everything to try and invade a nation as reputedly tough as England. At this point, William of Normandy, however, managed to pull off a diplomatic victory worth its weight in diamonds that changed the entire campaign. When I said the rest of Europe saw Harold Godwinson's coup d'etat as illegitimate, I wasn't kidding. They all did. And this included Rome. The papacy was somewhat hostile towards England a little at this point because, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury held the title in direct opposition to the current Pope, who'd excommunicated him a couple of years previously. I mean, the Archbishop was guilty of hoarding multiple church positions, a practice strictly forbidden as corrupt in church eyes. And to be blunt, for a nation to have an illegitimate Archbishop of Canterbury like that, now having a new illegitimate king like they did, to the papacy that just made sense. But <laughs> what could they do about it? But what William of Normandy saw right now was an opportunity. You see, there was, within church circles, a huge series of debates going on. I will not be going into detail about them. Suffice to say, it was very nuanced and very complicated, and I'm just going to offer a brutally simplified version. The Pope at the time was a man called Alexander II. He was a reformer and big on reform. He was big on kicking out corruption in the church, which often meant he had to clash with secular powers. An example being, he'd excommunicated Stigard of Canterbury. But Alexander II was looking for a way to show the kings of England he meant business. What William did was stumble upon this dilemma 
and offer the Pope something unprecedented. If the Pope would bless him, bless his cause, then he would do what was needed in the Pope's name. He was a humble duke. He would offer the crown to the Pope and swear loyalty to the pontiff to hold it. This just wasn't a wild offer from the far northwest of Europe, mind you. The troubles in the church had caused Italy to become a dangerously unstable land, and the Normans had moved into the region in numbers. Norman lords from Normandy now ruled huge swathes of southern Italy, and their borders were scarily close to the popes in Rome. Having the Duke of Normandy basically offering to owe the Pope big time and also allow the Pope send out a message that disobeying him when it came to matters like reforming church practices could result in a sanctified ass-kicking, that was one hell of an offer William was making. For all these reasons, the Port of London would have been the first to hear that the Pope had decided that after some very intense debates to sanction the attack by William. This was unprecedented in European history. What the Pope was doing had never been seen before. The best way I've heard it described was the Pope was sanctioning a crusade before crusades were a thing. Indeed here, only a generation before Urban II was to actually unleash the First Crusade upon the world. What William of Normandy was doing was running the first trial run of such a mechanism. The first time a Pope was sanctioning regime change on a scale like this. A war fully sanctioned and blessed by the Pope himself. Without that name ever being used, this was in effect now the Crusade for England. Maybe it was a dumb idea. Certainly the bishops and cardinals who supported this change in policy faced serious condemnation from their fellow bishops who recoiled in horror at the very idea, but the die was cast. William had papal blessing. And now, from Flanders, from Brittany, from across the region, more and more men suddenly heeded the call, enticed by a chance to wage war on behalf of the church, and for the chance to gain lands and booty being promised wildly by William to get numbers up, thousands descended upon the fields of Normandy, and William began constructing his fleet in earnest. London would have heard that this force was coming, war was coming, and there was nothing anyone could do about it. That may Harold had been travelling around the country like a madman, it seems, shoring up support for his regime while also preparing for a war with William. His own spies had confirmed was coming. When across the sky, Halley's Comet blazed, and it offered a portent for... Well, to be blunt, the symbolic meaning of Halley's Comet to an 11th century civilization who had no grasp of the Oort cloud or the orbits of interplanetary bodies was open to the imaginations of everybody gazing at it. It could be seen as good or bad, but as the residents of London, what it could mean, terrifying news arrived. A fleet of invaders had struck on the south coast of England. Luckily for everyone, this wasn't William, who turned out to be Tostig Godwinson, Harold's younger brother, who had landed on the Isle of Wight, managed it for supplies, and sailed along the south coast of England, raiding as he went. 
Turns out Tostig had been seeking for support to make him king at best, or at least return Northumbria to him at worst. We're never going to be sure which one he wanted most. He ravaged the south coast, kidnapped a bunch of sailors from Sandwich, and his fleet, which may have been as many as 50 ships at this point, finally fled when he heard his brother was coming to deal with him. Tostig sailed north, got to the river Humber, was surprised by the ferocity and resistance of the natives when he arrived, apparently lost a lot of men, and slunk off north into Scotland. Tostig's attacks did little, except perhaps make Harold assemble the fjord to defend the south coast sooner than he'd originally planned for. But it was clear that Harold summoned the mighty army of England, the fjord, to deal with the Norman menace, and he had a plan. And what he did was actually tactically very smart. Part of the vast armed forces of England he placed into the ship fjord, possibly and probably the fjord of places like Mercia, as we've established in previous chapters, landlocked regions supplied the ship fjord happily. These he took with him, and the ship fjord led by Harold stationed themselves upon the Isle of Wight. And with this one move, Harold's overall campaign strategy was revealed, and it was very simple and very effective. The Fjord of Wessex he stationed mostly along the south coast of England. Here they would watch out for William's invasion fleet, seeking to be alert when it arrived. When it did, the Fjord was to allow William land, pull back a distance, regroup and then hold them in place. Once word had arrived at the ship Fjord, this was to sail up and land behind the Normans and William would be trapped between two armies, the pincer attack. Harold Godwinson's favourite. It was a decent plan. And so London would have seen the ships of the city sail to Sandwich and then to the Isle of Wight. No doubt the London Fjord would have supplemented many of the ship Fjord ships. Many of the city's residents probably stood upon the Isle of Wight and awaited events. For months they waited. Across the Channel the weather was against William of Normandy. He could not sail his fleet and Harold could not intercept his fleet. And besides, William had spies of his own. His invasion could not hope to survive as long as Harold could drop an entire army behind him. The standoff lasted and lasted and lasted. Until finally, on September 8th, Harold realised there was only so much he could do with the feud. Quote, The men's provisions had run out and no one could keep them there any longer. Unquote. Harold had to grant permission for the feud to return home and attend to their neglected crops. And the shipfjord had to make the journey back to London, where they could be dismissed and allowed to return to their homes in the shires. The weather was bad. This bad weather had prevented William from sailing, but also apparently caused a few ships to founder and sink on the way to London. As Harold returned with his ships, to watch despondent Mercians and East Anglians offload on London's shores and begin their journey back to their farms, having wasted months stuck on the bloody Isle of Wight before almost drowning on the scurry journey back to London. News came to the king that would have probably shocked him deeply. Sails had been spotted on the horizon, signifying an invasion force was attacking England. But on the other side of the country, up in Northumbria, Norway was invading. Now here is where a normal history podcast would focus on why fully Norway invaded England, but this has 
little to do with London, so I'm going to give a bare-bones summary and specialists can fill in the blank elsewhere. The ruler of Normandy at the time was Harold Sigerson, known by his nickname Hadrada, a.k.a. the Hard Ruler. A former Vangarian guard, exile, adventurer and proper Vikinger, Hadrada had used his relation to Saint Olaf to claim the throne of Norway from King Magnus and then spent the best part of a decade desperately trying to claim the throne of Denmark. And he'd failed. His was a regime based on raiding, attacking and victory, and as such he was a man looking for a war he could win, or else his fractious Norse warriors would turn against him fast. Into his court came Tostig Godwinson. I mean, Tostig at this point had failed to get support in Scotland, and so as a last throw of the dice, having tried to get support for his madcap schemes in Normandy, Flanders and Denmark, as well as doing his own raiding on the south coast, he had somehow turned up and convinced Hadrada that he needed to mount an old-school Viking attack on Northumbria and take the throne. The two men made an unlikely alliance, sure, but the alliance was made, and Hadrada had a nominal claim because Hartha Canute had promised the throne to Magnus of Norway if he died without heirs, and then he died without heirs, and then Hadrada had taken the claim of Magnus. Yeah, it was rubbish. He just wanted a war, so that was it. Hadrada sailed to the shores of Scotland before falling on England with a massive force, and it wasn't just Norwegians with him. You may remember that his son Magnus, who had been left behind in Norway to be regent of the country during this invasion, had connections to the Vikings in the Irish Sea, and we know from sources in Ireland that several Irish Sea-based Vikings joined Hadrada's fleet, but not all of them. And we know several of the Norse in Dublin were resistant to this as they had good relations with Harold Godwinson based on the time he'd stayed there and also because Harold was all that remained of the massive Anglo-Scandinavian power bloc that had run England and to whom Dublin had sworn allegiance to when Canute was in charge. Regardless, this massive fleet landed in Northumbria just as Harold was returning after having dismissed the fjord and ship fjord. Harold probably spent a day or two wondering just what the hell he does now, before flushed and decisive. He sent riders out recalling those thanes he'd just dismissed and asking any who could to meet him up country. And he left London and rode north at speed. London would have waited, busied themselves with repairing the ships and the normal business of life for word of events to the north. They may have heard about William. William of Normandy's spies informed him that the shipfjord had stood down and the fjord had been dismissed and he decided to boldly try to invade but the weather was still against him and his invasion attempt had failed with his ships being wrecked and the whole fleet regrouping down the coast a little. His entire expedition was hanging on by a thread and then sometime round about September 26 or so word came to London. Harold had made the 200 mile journey north in the space of little more than a week. And when Hadrada and Tostig, after some initial victories, had turned up at Stamford Bridge on the 24th of September, awaiting a delegation of Northern English to bring them hostages so they could focus on campaigning in the south, they ran into Harold with an unexpected English army. And Harold destroyed them. The slaughter was staggering. The Norwegians pulverized and a scattered bunch of traumatised survivors slunk away. News arrived then to London on September 26th, 
of Harold Godwinson winning one of the greatest battles in English history. London liked winners, and sure, maybe he'd usurp the throne, but this Harold, he was showing the fighting spirit of Edmund Ironsides. London liked that. Yeah. But as London greeted this news, no doubt with much celebration, its many sailors and fishermen, its many dock workers and merchants, and all those who earned their livelihood from the sea, would have gazed upwards at the sky and noticed the weather was turning, the wind was blowing from the south, and William of Normandy had a window of opportunity. And at this point, we're going to end it to break it up a little. Please note, within 24 hours, I'll be releasing the next part, chapter 48, the second part of the Year of Three Kings. Thanks for listening.